You are listening to Demise of the Podcast, my podcast where I discuss writing. Specifically today, David Sedaris is writing as we delve into, not dive into, we're not diving into anything today, people. We're delving into Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim. I'm Patrick Attaway, your host. I just introduced everything backwards, but we're 53 episodes in. The podcast is almost a year old, people. Yes, Patrick Attaway is your host. That's me. I wish I could say it's me, your old pal, MJP. I am always tempted to start these podcasts with this is not a test. And I've talked about this is not a test on past episodes before with the artist formerly known as MJP. She is now Hannah Phillips. So we will not dead name Hannah, even though she refers to herself as the artist formerly known as MJP. I'm pretty sure that her sister probably still calls her Mike. Because that's just the kind of vibe I get from Hannah's sister. Anyway, we have gotten so far off topic and it is only a minute into the podcast, people. What's been going on with me this week? Well, before I get into this week, let me take you back to the week after Christmas, a few days before New York, New New Year's. I'm not pronouncing anything correctly today. I'm going to take a sip of water. I've been drinking a lot of water today, and I'll get into why. If you follow me on Twitter, you already know all my little health escapades this week, but on the last week of 2020, I had to call out of work on Wednesday because I woke up and it felt like I I have a hard time describing the feeling, but it was this high fatigue, okay? And I immediately went back to sleep after calling out because that's how bad it was. I Normally, if I wake up, it takes me a little while to get back to sleep, but it, it didn't take me long to get back to sleep, and I didn't eat until after 12. It was bad. So I was clearly suffering from allergies or something, right? And two weeks later, on a Wednesday, I had to call out from work because I had the exact same feeling. And also, my prostate was starting to hurt. Now, I've had issues with prostatitis before. And since I've had prostatitis, now and then, I would feel little, like, painful tingles down there. And I'd be like, oh God, I hope it's not happening again. Well, this time it happened again, and apparently it's been in the works for a few weeks. So, I went on a rant about health care and everything, and I work in health care as an accountant. But, what I've come to the conclusion um, is that it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor in this country... If you live in a small town and you have one urologist office in town and the doctor can't see you for weeks, well, you're screwed. 
So I had to go to urgent care yesterday. I had to leave work early. My wife made me. I was going to wait until 4 or 5. I figured we'd get out an hour early because of the holiday. We didn't. And I had to speak with my manager, and she said, let me call you before you leave. So I spoke to her, and she said, I'm just letting you know, my boss asked about why you were out Wednesday, probably because I was out two weeks earlier. And she was just interested why you were out. So get a doctor's note. Company policy is that if you're out for three days, you have to get a doctor's note. But my manager is proactive and I would like to think in a positive manner that my manager is looking out for my best interest because her boss and her boss's boss and their boss's boss and so on, well, they don't know me. Granted... Since no one's listening that I work with, I can probably say this, but we had a meeting recently and my boss's boss was bragging about uh, my team's work and I am on a team of three people and we service a big doctor's office in another state and that doctor's office brings in a lot of revenue. I'm going to clear my throat real quick. Bear with me. So, I was put on this site because I was doing so well with my previous sites. Before I was working this doctor's office, which is literally a bunch of different doctor's offices under the same tax ID. That's all complicated mess. I worked three different sites at the same time. And one of them was a urologist, so I do have some experience there. But um, what's interesting is that those three sites were really happy with my work. And then I got moved to the bigger site. And all three of those sites that I worked on, after I was gone for a year, they left. So, when I was on them, they were happy. When I left, they were not. The site that I'm working with now likes my work and my other two colleagues' work so much that they are a reference for our company now. And she said that was all because of us. So, clearly my work is not bad. And I'm the one person on my small team that is actually always ahead. And I have other responsibilities that are, respo- that are important for my side. So I feel that if I'm out and I'm still able to come in the next day and do both the work of the day and the previous day, I should be cut some slack. Especially since last year, I only took four days of scheduled PTO. We are allowed, I think, I want to say 15 days maybe of scheduled PTO. 
maybe 10, I think 80 hours. Anyway, I only took four days of vacation last year. Any other PTO I took was because I was ill. And so I was out in August because of this same issue. So it's affecting me a lot. And uh, I don't know if it's stress related. I don't know if it's related to something with my dick. I don't know. Because apparently prostatitis is even a mystery to people who work in healthcare, to urologists, to whoever you want to talk about dicks with. They don't know exactly why. It could be bacteria, it could be something else, it could be muscular. It depends on if there's an infection or if it's just inflamed. And then there's chronic prostatitis, and I've had it three times. I'm praying that I don't have chronic prostatitis. I've spent 10 minutes talking about me. Now, last week, I, I think I just delved into the book. So I am going to read two of the essays and discuss them per usual. I'm going to take this opportunity before I start reading to tell you if I don't stop burping up my ice cream. If you want to support the podcast, even after this terrible display of me being on antibiotics and uh, not being well and still doing the podcast, um, you can go... What was that? Did I just imagine that? Did you hear that? If you would like to support the podcast, go buy my books. They're 99 cents on Amazon. Type in Patrick Attaway, P-A-T-R-I-C-K-A-T-T-A-W-A-Y, into Amazon, and you will find several of my books. I have poetry. I have short stories. I have a short story collection. I have two novels out right now. I have a novel called Surviving New America that's going to be out pretty soon this year. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Are you ready to get in this book? Go buy my books. But I'm going to read this book by David Sedaris. We're getting into this first essay called The Ship Shape. My mother and I were at the dry cleaners standing behind a woman we had never seen. A nice-looking woman, my mother would later say. Well put together. Classy. The woman was dressed for the season in a light cotton shift pattern with oversized daisies. Her shoes matched the petals on her purse, which was black and yellow striped, hung over her shoulder, buzzing the flowers like a lazy bumblebee. She handed in her claim check, accepted her garments, and then expressed gratitude for what she considered to be fast and efficient service. You know, she said, people talk about Raleigh, but it isn't really true, is it? The Korean man nodded. The way you do when you're a foreigner and understand that someone has finished a sentence. He wasn't the owner, just a, a helper who'd stepped in from the back and it was clear he had no idea what she was saying. My sister and I were visiting from out of town, the woman said, a little louder now, and again the, the man nodded. I'd love to stay a while longer and explore, but my home, well... 
one of my homes is on the garden tour, so I've got to get back to Williamsburg. I was 11 years old. It's still the statement seems strange to me. If she'd hoped to impress the Korean, the woman had obviously wasted her breath. So, who was this information for? My home, well, one of my homes. By the end of the day, my mother and I had repeated this line no less than 50 times. The garden tour was unimportant. But the first part of her sentence brought us great pleasure. There was an indicated by the dash, a pause between the words home and well. A brief moment in which she decided, oh, why not? The following word, one, had blown from her mouth as if propelled by a gentle breeze. And this was the difficult part. You had to get it just right, or else the sentence lost its power. Falling somewhere between a self-conscious laugh and a sigh of happy confusion, the one afforded her statement a double meaning. To her peers it meant, Look at me. I catch myself coming and going. And to the less fortunate, it was a way of saying, Don't kid yourself, it's a lot of work having more than one house. Now, as I said in the past two podcast episodes, Sedaris begins a lot of his essays with either an anecdote that is sort of separate from everything else, but it relates uh, a lot of nitpicking or he's making fun of someone. He's really letting this, this rich lady have it in a sense, because the conversation that he's having with his mother is probably a lot like something I would have had with my mother. When I was a kid, my mother tried to get into yoga and she had exercise tapes. I used to watch her Richard Simmons tapes for the entertainment value, but she got a yoga tape one time and the woman on the tape was just kind of out there. She said things like, we're going to start quilting the mind. Well, my mother and I thought that was the most hilarious thing ever because she would reference it all the time. In fact, she used to write me letters when I was in school, and my teacher would pass out letters from our family members, and she quoted that yoga tape. I remember very well. So, my mother and I would probably have gone back and forth with, well, one of my homes, just as Sedaris and his mother had. The first dozen times we tried it, our voices sounded pinched and snobbish, but by mid-afternoon they had softened. We wanted what this woman had. Mocking her made it seem hopelessly unattainable, so we reverted to our natural selves. At some point in the mid to late 1960s, North Carolina began to referring to itself as Variety Vacation Land. The words were stamped onto license plates. And a series of television commercials reminded us that, unlike a lot of our neighbors, we had both the beach and the mountains. There were those who bounced back and forth between one and the other, but most people tended to choose a landscape and stick to it. We were beach people, 
Emerald Isle people, but that was mainly my mother's doing. I don't think our father would have cared whether we took a vacation or not. Being away from home left him anxious and crabby, but our mother loved the ocean. She couldn't swim, but enjoyed standing at the water's edge with a pole in her hand. It wasn't exactly what you'd call fishing, as she caught nothing and expressed neither hope nor disappointment in regard to her efforts. What she thought about while looking at the waves was a complete mystery, yet you could tell that these thoughts pleased her and that she liked herself better while thinking of them. I really neglected not reading an essay about David's parents or his sisters in the last episode. And I guess the two books that I picked, while they may have had an essay or two about his family, they weren't really geared towards his family in a sense. And this book is a little bit more, but his relationship with his mother and his father, it's interesting because he obviously has a better relationship with his mother and his father has never really changed. You see that he's always been this kind of gripey conservative guy and he has a, they both have kind of strange dark sense of humors, but uh, David's father is just, it's like he gets off on griping and bitching and complaining, you know. And David's mother, which we know now in retrospect, thanks to Calypso, drank a lot in her later years. And she seemed to tolerate David's father. In all the essays that I've read about his parents it didn't seem like they really had a romantic relationship. I could be totally wrong. But it seemed like they very much lived their own lives kind of separate in the same house. So I'm sure that it's explored a little bit more in this essay. But David has something that I don't, that he writes a lot about in his, his essays and it's a big family, siblings, and they're all connected in their own unique ways. So it's interesting to me because I was raised by a single mother and my experiences with my father were a lot different than with my mother. I could go into that now, but basically my dad tried to start new families twice after he and my mother divorced and both of his other two marriages ended in divorce and along the way he only had a daughter my sister my half sister who I have not seen since late 2015 and before that I had not seen her for about 10 years so Honestly, I have no interest in seeing her. Um, I could get into that more, but uh, she's not a part of my life. So I don't know that I really consider her family um, other than by blood. We don't talk. We don't see each other. So what is there to really say about it? But my family is my mother and now my wife. And it's interesting because 
I haven't really seen my mother much since March. I've, I've been in her apartment a few times, but we've only done our kind of weekly ritual, which we used to do. We, we get a meal together and see each other. Um, we haven't really done that since March. We did it for my birthday and her birthday. I don't think we even did it for my birthday, honestly. But I'm able to be away from her for long periods of time without really feeling that bad. I mean, I miss her, but I don't feel lost in any way. I can kind of be on my own without really feeling that I'm alone. But I get the sense from David in his writings that he has this connection to his family that I, I will just never know. One year, our father waited too late to make our reservations, and we were forced to take something on the sound. It wasn't a cottage, but a rundown house, the sort of place where poor people lived. The yard was enclosed by a chain-link fence, and the air was thick with the flies and mosquitoes normally blown away by the ocean breezes. Midway through the vacation, a hideously woolly caterpillar fell from a tree and bit my sister Amy on the cheek. Her face swelled and discolored, and within an hour, were it not for her arms and legs, it would have been difficult to recognize her as a human. My mother drove her to the hospital, and when they returned, she employed my sister as Exhibit A, pointing as if this were not her daughter, but some ugly stranger forced to share our quarters. This is what you get for waiting until the last minute, she said to our father. No dunes, no waves, just this. From that year on, our mother handled the reservations. We went to Emerald Isle for a week every September, and were always oceanfront, a word that suggested a certain degree of entitlement. The oceanfront cottages were on stilts, which made them appear, if not large, then at least imposing. Some were painted, some were sided, Cape Cod style, with wooden shingles, and all of them had names, the cleverest being Loafer's Paradise. The owners had cut their sign in the shape of two moccasins, resting side by side. The shoes were realistically painted, and the letters were bloated and listless, loitering like drunks against the soft faux leather. Now that's a sign, our father would say, and we would agree. There was the skinny dipper, pelican's perch, lazy days, the scotch bonnet, loony dunes, the name of each house followed by the name and hometown of the owner, the Duncan clan, Charlotte, the Graftons, Rocky Mount, Hal and Jean Starling of Pinehurst, signs that essentially said, my home, well, one of my homes. While at the beach, we sensed more than ever that our lives were governed by luck. When we had it, when it was sunny, my sisters and I felt as if we were somehow personally responsible. We were a fortunate family, and therefore, everyone around us was allowed to swim and dig in the sand. When it rained, we were unlucky and stayed indoors to search our souls. It'll clear after lunch, our mother would say, and would we carefully using the placemats that had brought us luck in the past. 
When that failed, we would move on to plan B. Oh, mother, you work too hard, we'd say. Let's do the dishes. Let us sweep sand off the floor. We spoke like children in a fairy tale, hoping our goodness might lure the sun from its hiding place. You and father have been so kind to us. Here, let us massage your shoulders. This whole business. And I know that you are just so annoyed with me right now for interrupting the essay. If you haven't noticed by now, this is what this podcast is all about. I think I have talked about my 1995 family vacation to Florida before. It was Port St. Joe, Florida, and my grandmother rented us a house on the beach. It was very luxurious. It was a very nice house. Of course, that house is gone now because a giant storm came and destroyed a lot of what was in Port St. Joe, and now it is a Trump-supporting infested waterfront. But in those days, it was a beautiful place, and... In 1995, I don't think that I appreciated it as much as I should have. I had fun. I liked it. But, you know, there's something about being a spoiled kid. Because, unlike other spoiled kids, I am no longer spoiled. There are some ways that I'm spoiled. But, all in all, I work a 40-hour week job. I'm in grad school with the hopes of one day having a job with a higher salary. So I wish I could go back so badly to 1995 in that beach house and just savor it. And David Zedaris grew up and he bought two fucking beach houses on Emerald So, you know. Clearly, he, he feels the same way I do, only uh, he, he can afford two beach houses. Um, as he would say, one of his beach houses. The next day, they made an appointment with a real estate agent in Moorhead City. We'll just be discussing the possibility, my mother said. It's just a meeting, nothing more. We wanted to join them, but they took only Paul, who was two years old and unfit to be left in our company. The morning meeting led to half a dozen viewings, and when they returned, my mother's face was so impassive, it seemed almost paralyzed. It was fine, she said. The real estate agent was very nice. We got the idea that she was under oath to keep something to herself, and that the effort was causing her actual physical pain. It's all right, my father said. You can tell them. Well... We saw this one place in particular, she told us. Now, it's nothing to get worked up about, but... But it's perfect, my father said. A real beauty, just like your mother here. He came from behind and pinched her on the bottom. She laughed and swatted at him with a towel, and we witnessed what we would later come to recognize as the rejuvenating power of real estate. It's what fortunate couples turn to when their sex life had faded, and they're too pious for affairs. A second car might bring people together for a week or two, but a second home can revitalize a marriage for up to nine months after the closing. 
The following afternoon, our parents took us to see the house. Now, I don't want you to get your hopes up too high, my mother said, but it was far too late for that. It was 15, it was a 15 minute drive from one end of the island to the other, and along the way, we proposed names for what we had come to think of as our cottage. I'd already given it a good deal of thought, but waited a few minutes before offering my suggestion. Are you ready, I said. Our sign will be the silhouette of a ship. Nobody said anything. Get it? The shape of a ship? Our house will be called the ship shape? Well, you'd have to write that on the sign, my father said. Otherwise, nobody will get it. But if you write out the words, you're ruining the joke. What about the nut hut, Amy said. Hey, father said. That's, that's a good idea, he laughed. Not realizing, I guess, that there was already a nut hut. We passed it a thousand times. How about something with the word sandpiper in it, my mother said. Everybody likes sandpipers, right? Normally, I would have hated them for not recognizing my suggestion as the best. But this was clearly a special time, and I didn't ruin it with brooding. Each of us wanted to be the one who came up with the name, and inspiration could be hiding some, somewhere, anywhere. When the interior of the car had been exhausted of ideas, we looked at the windows and searched the passing landscape. Two thin girls braced themselves before crossing the busy road, hopping from foot to foot on the scalding pavement. The Tar Heel, Lisa called out. Know the wait and see. Get it? S-E-A. A car trailing a motorbike. Motorbike. A motorboat. I am really fucked up. Pulled up to a gas pump. The Shell Station, Gretchen shouted. Everything we saw was offered as a possible name, and the resulting list of nominees confirmed that once you'd left the shoreline, Emerald Isle was sorely lacking in natural beauty. <laughs> The TV antenna, my sister Tiffany said. The telephone pole. The toothless black man selling shrimp from the back of his van. The cement mixer. The overturned grocery cart. Gulls on a garbage can. My mother inspired the cigarette butt thrown out the window and suggested we look for ideas on the beach rather than on the highway. I mean, my God, how depressing can you get? She acted annoyed, but... We could tell she was really enjoying it. Give me something that suits us, she says. Give me something that will last. What would ultimately last were those 15 minutes on the coastal highway. But we didn't know that then. When older, even the crankiest of us would accept them as proof that we were once a happy family. Our mother young and healthy, our father the man who could snap his fingers and give us everything we wanted. The whole lot of us competing to name our good fortune. The house was, as our parents had promised, perfect. This was an older cottage with pine-paneled walls that gave each home the thoughtful quality of a den. Light fell in strips from the louvered shutters, and the furniture which was included in the sale reflected the taste of a distinguished sea captain. Once we'd claimed bedrooms and lain awake all night, mentally rearranging the furniture, it would be our father who'd say, Now hold on a minute, 
It's not ours yet. By the next afternoon, he had decided that the golf course wasn't so great after all. Then it rained for two straight days, and he announced that it might be wiser to buy some land, wait a few years, and think about building a place of our own. I mean, let's be practical. Our mother put on her raincoat. She tied a plastic bag over her head and stood at the water's edge. And for the first time in our lives, we knew exactly what she was thinking. By our final day of vacation, our father had decided that instead of building a place on Emerald Isle, we should improve the home we already had. Maybe add a pool, he said. What do you kids think about that? Nobody answered. By the time he'd finished wheeling it down, the house at the beach had become a bar in the basement. It looked just like a real bar, with tall stools and a nooks for wine. There was a sink for washing glasses and an assortment of cartoon napkins illustrating the lighter side of alcoholism. For a week or two, my sisters and I tottered at the counter, pretending to be drunks. But then the novelty wore off and we forgot all about it. I... Oh, man. The, the idea of someone building a bar in their basement, I... You know, there's this guy who's built like an entire town in his basement. The things that people do in their basements, it's fucking crazy. My uncle basically made a movie theater in his basement. He had a a big screen TV back when big screen TVs were a novelty. And he had all his DVDs. This is way before Blu-rays. And I remember back in 2005... I was down there before he was taking me to the airport to go be, see my dad for the summer. And he asked me what movie I wanted to watch. And I said, I want to watch R.E.M. Perfect Square. And he's like, you want to watch a concert? Yeah. I was very much in love with R.E.M. and their music at the time. Anyway, so this whole thing with putting shit in your basement... It's a luxury. It's a ritzy thing to do, really. Basically, building a tribute to alcoholism in your basement is for the wealthy and upper middle class. I don't even think upper middle class people can do that anymore. And I think there are different classes of wealthy now, too. America is a crazy place where people build replicas of bars in their basements, or they buy a house on the beach that they maybe visit once a month, maybe once a year. Anyway, let's get back into this essay. On subsequent vacations, both with and without our parents, we would drive by the cottage we had once thought of our own. Each of us referred to it by a different name. And over time, qualifiers became necessary. The summer after we didn't buy it, the new owners, or those people, as we like to call them, painted the ship shape yellow. In the late 70s, Amy noted that the nut hut had extended the carport and paved the driveway. Lisa was relieved when the wait-and-see returned to its original color. 
and Tiffany was incensed when the toothless black man selling shrimp from the back of his van sported a sign endorsing Jesse Helms and the 1984 senatorial campaign. Four years later, my mother called to report the sandpiper had been badly damaged by Hurricane Hugo. It's still there, she said, but barely. Shortly thereafter, according to Gretchen, the shell station was torn apart and sold as a vacant lot. I know that such a story does not quite work to inspire sympathy. We had no legitimate claim to self-pity, were ineligible even to hold a grudge, but that didn't stop us from complaining. In the coming years, our father would continue to promise what he couldn't deliver. In a time, we grew to think of him as an actor auditioning for the role of a benevolent millionaire. He'd never get the part, but liked the way that the words felt in his mouth. What do you say to a new car, he'd ask. Who's up for a cruise to the Greek Isle? He expected us to respond by playing the part of an enthusiastic family, but we were unwilling to resume our old roles. As if carried by a tide, our mother drifted farther and farther away, first to twin beds and then down the hall to a room decorated with seascapes and baskets of sun-bleached sand dollars. It would have been nice, a place at the beach, but we already had a home, a home with a bar. Besides, had things worked out, you wouldn't have been happy for us. We're not that kind of people. My dad loved, he still loves, to come up with schemes for things. And when I was a kid and he had just started dating his third wife, she was living with him, of course. They just met probably a month before. He told me that he had met some people who were in some sort of business and he was going to start selling something that was going to make him a lot of money and he'd get to buy a big screen TV and a new Xbox and he qualified Xbox over PS2 because the Xbox had better graphics which I don't know if that's true or not I never played an Xbox as a kid and in retrospect both the PS2 and the Xbox are pixelated nightmares and we're coming up in an age where the PS3 is about to look that way to us, too. Interesting how everything looks different in retrospect when the new thing is introduced. But, yeah. My father bought this house. First house he's ever really bought in South Carolina. And he was scheming. He was going to flip the house. And he and his girlfriend, who he's no longer with, were going to live in a brand new big-ass RV. Uh, an RV that was like a house. And they were going to live in his old RV park that he was living in before he moved into the house. And there's a pool at this house. There's a second story to this house. It's three-bedroom, two-bath. It's a nice house, and he had all this stuff in it. He had uh, a jukebox and a pinball machine and a arcade machine and things that he'd always wanted but never had before. And for once, as an adult, I got to see my dad finally live out a dream of his, and he was talking about selling it. 
and it never really made sense to me. He's got a pool, and I think he had a hot tub too. I'm not, I'm not sure. He's got a waterfall. Anyway, this perfect house of his apparently wasn't his dream though. His dream was to have a lot of money as a result of selling the house and living in an RV. And of course, his girlfriend and him broke up and then the pandemic. So he's still living in the house and I don't see him leaving anytime soon. It's interesting how we get backed into a corner even when we're living out our dreams. The next essay that I'm going to read is called The Change in Me. And I selected this because I actually remember reading it. And I remember enjoying it. Shall we? You know you're young when someone asks you for money and you take it as a compliment. You look pretty cool. Can I ask you a question? The beggar was a girl in her late teens, a hippie standing outside the convenience store at the North Hills Shopping Center. She wore a peasant blouse and long, elephant-belled jeans that made it appear as though she had no feet. Granny glasses, amulets, a beaded headband. I couldn't believe that someone so sophisticated was talking to me. I don't mean to interject here, but it astounds me that there was a time where this sort of fashion was considered cool. Because if someone dressed like that now, they'd stick out. You'd call them a hipster. Maybe even back then you would have called them a hipster. But having an older woman talk to you is also a nice thing. And yeah, David's gay. But even if you're a young gay man, having an older woman talk to you is a nice thing. I was 13 that summer and had ridden to the quick, mar- to the quick mart to the quick pick with my mother, who handed me a $10 bill and asked me to run in for a carton of cigarettes. She watched the hippie ask me a question, watched me run into the store, and watched me stop on the way out to hand the girl a dollar. What was that, she asked when I got into the car. Who was that girl? Had I been with my father, I would have lied, saying she was a friend, but my mother knew I had no interesting friends, and so I told the truth. You didn't give her a dollar, she said. You gave her my dollar. But she needed it. What for? Shampoo? A a needle and thread? I don't know. I didn't ask. I don't know. I didn't ask. Being mocked by the untalented was easy to brush off, but my mother was really good at imitating people. Coming from her, I sounded spoiled and vacant, like a Persian cat, only human. If you want to give her a dollar... That's your own business, but that dollar was mine, and I want it back. I offered to pay her when I, when we got home, but that wasn't good enough. I just don't want any old dollar. I want that one. It was ridiculous to claim an attachment to a particular dollar bill, but for my mother, this had become a matter of principle. It's my dollar, and I want it back. When I told her it was too late, she got out and opened my car door. Well, we'll see about that. The hippie looked over in our direction, and I lowered myself in the seat. Mom, please, you can't do this. It was touch and go for a moment, and I knew she stopped short of actually dragging me from the station wagon. 
Can't we put this behind us? I'll pay you back when we get home. Really, I swear. She watched me cower and then got back into the driver's seat. You think everyone who asks for money actually needs it. God, are you gullible. Have you have you ever given money to a homeless person before? One of my recent memories. And I this also got me in trouble with my wife, by the way. I think this is before we got married. She was in a store and I had walked out to my truck for something. And I happened to have $5 in my pocket that wasn't in my wallet. And this guy was just walking through the parking lot and he looked homeless. But he looked like kind of a well-groomed homeless man. A professional homeless man. A drifter. And he said, do you have any spare change or a buck that I could have so I could get something to eat? He didn't look like he was starving. But I reached in my pocket and I gave him the $5. I'm not going to miss $5. I've been desperate for money to the point where I went through my truck and got quarters out from underneath the floor mats and shit. But I'm not going to miss $5. So I mentioned this to my wife and she said... Why did you give him $5? You shouldn't have given him anything. You should have pretended you didn't have anything. This is another story that I can tell. Um, I was getting gas, and I literally spent my last $7. This, wasn't, this was in 2019, I think. And, uh, you know, I'm like any other American. I live paycheck to paycheck, and I, I put $7 of gas in my truck, and... I think I had some money on my card, but this homeless gentleman spotted me. And this was a a different kind of homeless. The first guy, he was uh, a bearded gentleman who didn't look dirty, but he looked like he didn't have a place to live. This gentleman looked like he may have a place to live, but he's coming up to me, and asking for money in a very confused sort of tone that suggests that either he is mentally unwell and or on drugs. And uh, I was just pumping my gas mine in my business, and he snuck around the gas pump and got really close to me and says, excuse me, can I get a dollar? I, I don't think he said excuse me. He was like, let me have a dollar. He didn't even ask. He just said, let me have a dollar. And I said, I'm sorry, man. I, I spent my last seven bucks on gas. And he says, oh, man, I was hoping to get me a cheeseburger. We were right next to McDonald's. And I told my wife this, and she said, why do you feel sorry for this man? He's probably on drugs. He's probably going to use it for drugs. And I don't think that you can really buy drugs for a dollar, but... Um, Maybe there's some sort of super drug on the market that people are buying for a dollar, or maybe he was saving his pennies for a hit. But um, I really did believe that he was desperate and asking for money because he was hungry, because he was not in good shape. And I felt bad, and I the next couple of times I was at that gas station, I had a couple of bucks in my... I think I actually put a $10 bill in my pocket just in case he came by. And you may think that's irresponsible on my part, but I would rather 
you know, I can't judge people for their habits. And if he's using it to get high, whatever, I don't fucking care. He's going to do it anyway. And maybe he's going to do it in a safe place. It's not like me not giving him a dollar is going to break his habit. But hopefully he, he's going to use it for food. And I was tempted to, to take him to that McDonald's and get him something to eat anyway with my card. Anyway, we're going to get back into this. I'm sorry for the long tangent about homeless people. The, spa- the spare change girl seemed to have started a trend. On my next trip to the quick pick, I was hit up by another hippie, this one a guy, who squatted on the ground in front of me. He saw me approach and held out his leather hand. Greetings, brother. Think you could manage to help friend? I handed over 50 cents I planned to spend on a Coke and potato chips, and then I leaned against the post watching this hippie and studied his ways. Some people, the cool people who had no extra money, made it a point to say, sorry man, or you know how it is. The hippie would nod as if to familiar music, and the cool person person would do the same. The uncool people passed without stopping, but you could still see that the hippie held a strange power over them. Spare change, a dime, a quarter. It was a small amount that asked a big question. Care ye not about your fellow man? It helped, I thought, that he bore a striking resemblance to Jesus, who was rumored to be returning any day now. I watched for half an hour, and then the cashier came out, fluttered his hands as if he were whisking brooms. We can't have you hassling the customers. Go on now, scoot. Hassle was a young man's word, and coming from a full-grown man, it sounded goofy, reminding me of the way movie cowboys used the word amigo. I wanted the hippie to stand up for himself and say, Cool it, baldy, or who's hassling who? But instead, he just shrugged. It was almost elegant the way he picked himself off the ground and crossed the parking lot to what was most likely his parents' car. It didn't matter that he didn't live that he probably lived at home criticizing the system during the day and sleeping each night in a comfortable bed. He'd maybe put my quarters towards some luxury, incense or guitar strings, but that was no big deal either. He was a grown-up's worst nightmare and minus the hat, I wanted to be just like him. The steak fair arrived in mid-September and the concessions crew moved back and forth between concerts at the arena and smaller events held at the Speedway. Dan and I were settling up for the first stock car race when Jerry announced that instead of Coke, we'd be selling cans of something called near beer. What separated near beer from the real thing was alcohol content. Beer had one, and near beer didn't. It tasted like carbonated oatmeal, but Jerry hoped that customers might be deceived by the label which was robust and boozy-looking. The mind can play tricks, he said. Maybe he was right, but the minds that mistook a sugared tablet for an aspirin were not the minds that gathered to witness a North Carolina stock car race. Our first load sold instantly, but come our second time out, people had begun to catch on. Bear my ass, they shouted. Y'all's is deceivers. It'll pick up when the heat kicks in, Jerry said, but no one believed him. 
There was an hour-long break between the first and second stock car event, and as Dan and I walked along the midway, I thought about a suede vest I'd seen the previous week at JCPenney's. It was what the saleswoman described as a masculine cherry red, with lines of fringe swaying like bangs from the yoke. $18 was a lot of money, but a vest like that would not go unnoticed. Couple it with a turtleneck or the right bottom button-down shirt, and it announced that you were sensitive and no stranger to peace. Wear it bare-chested, and it suggested that, long hair or not, yours was a life lived in, that devil-may-care region best described as out there. I'd hoped that by working all weekend, I might earn enough to buy it, and what with the near beer, that was pretty much out of the question. Now, I'd have to put it on my Christmas list, which definitely neutered the allure. What had seemed hip and dangerous would appear just the opposite when wrapped in a box marked from Santa. My grandmother has been married five times, and her fifth husband is sort of like a grandfather to me, only I haven't seen him since I was 11. But anyway... They lived up in the mountains, and he worked at a dealership, a Ford dealership, and I had my Chicago Bulls hat with me, and for some reason I thought it would be fun to act like I was blind and asking for money, and I went through his office with him as he introduced me to everyone, and I held out my hand, and I looked up in the sky as if I was blind, and I said, money for the poor, for the poor. And one guy actually gave me a few pennies. So that was um, that was nice. But I have never once asked for money as an adult, um, from strangers at least. But I've never borrowed money from friends either. So that's interesting. But when I was a kid... That was the only time I asked for money from strangers. But here we have our very own David Sedaris holding out his hat and asking, Spare change? The brothers looked at each other and then back at me. Okay, sure, the old one said. Gene, give this guy some money. What do I have to? Gene asked. Because I said so, that's why. The older brother unstrapped his glasses and rubbed a raw spot on the bridge of his nose. You're a hippie, right? He smoked as if, like Canadians or Methodists, hippies walked quietly among us, indistinguishable to the naked eye. Well, of course he's a hippie, Gene said. Otherwise, he wouldn't be bothering people. He sorted through his change and handed me a dime. Right on, I said. It was the easiest thing in the world. Dan worked one side of the Ferris wheel, and I took the other. We asked for money the way you might ask for the time. And when someone gave it, we blessed them with the peace sign or the squinty nod that translated to, I'm glad you know where I'm coming from. Adults were cheap and too judgmental, so we stuck to people our own age, concentrating on the obvious out-of-towners who had heard about hippies but had never seen one in real life. People either gave or they didn't. But no one asked what we needed the money for or why two seemingly healthy teenagers would trouble complete strangers for change. This was freedom, and to make it taste just that much sweeter, 
we worked our way back to the speedway where Jerry was settling, settling, setting up. I promise I can read people. Jerry was setting up for the third stock car race. I'd have kicked y'all's asses, he said, walking out on me the way you done. That's no way to treat a friend. He handed us our uniforms and we tossed them on the counter, announced that we'd found an easier way to make money. Then get on out of here, he said, and don't come crawling back neither. I don't have no use for backstabbers. It turned out that the vest was not suede, but something closer to velveteen. That was a disappointment, but having suffered in its name, I had no choice but to buy it. With the money I had left over, I got a pair of blue corduroy hip huggers, which made an ironic statement when worn with the red vest and a white shirt. I love America. Yeah, right. Tell me you're not wearing that out of the house, my mother said. I thought she was in some way jealous. Her youth gone, style was beyond her grasp, and she hated to see me enjoying the things she could not. Could you please stop hassling me, I said. Ooh, hassled are we, she sighed and poured herself a glass of wine from the gallon jug in the pantry. Go on then, Uncle Sam. Don't let me stop you. I debuted my new outfit at the Quick Pick where, once again, I ran into the hippie girl. She wasn't begging this time, just standing with a friend and smoking cigarettes. Hanging out. I nodded hello, and as I passed, she called me a teeny bopper, meaning, in effect, I was a poser. The two of them cracked up laughing, and I burned with that particular shame that comes with being 14 years old and realizing that your mother was right. Man. I always come back to this memory of this girl when I was in daycare. She was a bit out there. She was bigger than the other girls. When we all went to McDonald's one time, her mother gave her extra money so she could eat a Big Mac instead of a Happy Meal like the rest of us. So she one day decided to braid her hair in a nice pretty little braid where one part of her hair was braided and the other was not, so it was out, loose, lovely, whatever. And I remember she got in trouble for something and she started to cry. And every time I wear something that I've been meaning to wear, but I haven't really wanted to, you know, I haven't found the occasion for, you know, a shirt that might have something on it that's a little different and noticeable. Uh, I think about her for some reason because I feel like I'm going to get in trouble or I'm going to say something or I'm going to end up getting hurt and I'm going to be wearing that thing and it's going to stand out and it's going to make the scene that much sadder as if I came out in my special outfit and I just got hurt. And for what? Oh, God. Why does my mind work this way? The last thing I wanted was to pass the hippie again, and so I stayed in the quick pick as long as I could, biding my time until the manager kicked me out. How was it that one moment you could look so good and the next you would give almost anything to crawl into your grocer's freezer, settling beneath the pot pies until you reached that mysterious age at which a person could truly think for himself? It would be so peaceful more drowsing than actually sleeping. 
Every so often you'd come to and notice that the styles had changed, the shag had arrived, beards were out. You would look at the world as if through the window of a bus, hopping out at that moment of time you instinctively recognized as your own. Here was the point where, without even trying, you could just be yourself and admit that you liked country music or hated the, the thought of hair against your neck. You could look and act however you wanted and spend all day in the quick pick if you felt like it. On leaving, you'd pass a woman dressed in a floor-length skirt, the paisley patterns resembling germs as seen through a microscope, a beaded headband, delicate, wire-rimmed glasses. She'd ask you for a quarter and you'd laugh, not cruelly, but politely, softly, as if she were telling a joke you'd already heard. When I think of a time in my life when anyone cared about what people wore. It was probably junior high school. And I had a very awkward phase in junior high school. My mother probably would have dressed me like any other kid, but I wanted to be different. I didn't want to wear polos. I didn't want to wear khakis. I just wanted to wear a t-shirt and jeans. So I probably wore Tommy Hilfiger, you know, which at the time wasn't in style, but I didn't care. I just wore plain clothes, basically. Nothing really different or dramatic. I think I had a Pokemon shirt, which, you know, at the time fellow nerds enjoyed, but I think I still have that in the closet somewhere. I've had a few Pokemon shirts in my time. Anyway, uh, you know... Getting so hung up on the way we look and the way we dress, it's always been for the dogs. And it reminds me of when I was a kid and my grandmother took me into her office because I wanted to grow my hair out. I hadn't gotten a haircut in probably a month. You know, at the time, that seems like forever, but it wasn't really a big deal. And she took me into her office and proceeded to make me cry about it. She asked me, what I wanted to be when I grew up, and you know how that probably devolved from there. So, yeah, I, I, I don't judge people based on what they, they dress like or how they have their hair. It, it seems a peculiar way to judge character, really. I hope that you enjoyed this episode, and I'm sure I'll listen back to it when I'm not on antibiotics and I will think, wow, I sound like a dumb shit. I was on antibiotics back in August and early September. So I'm sure that those episodes are similarly uh, disinteresting. But I am so glad that you listened. This has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the Podcast and happy reading.